that is our prayer today. We're going to read together from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll find the text on the screen, but also in your notes. If you would, let's stand together. This is one of the ways that we express respect for God's Word and acknowledging that all of us are submitting our lives to His will. Let's read together from God's Word. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Yesterday I was uh, out with a couple of my kids. I had uh, Zachary, my oldest, and Luke and uh, Anna Grace. They're the youngest. Luke is about four. Uh, we were sitting outside and just enjoying uh, being outside in nature. And uh, Luke uh, raised a question just as we were sitting and talking. Uh, he said, Dad, what is pollen? And that's a good question, right? Particularly here in Central Texas, we tend to have uh, plenty of it. And I could have done maybe what some of you, uh, you dads like me do at this case. You might have said, hey, wait a second. Reached into your pocket and what is pollen? Yeah, see, this gave me a kitten. It didn't even give me pollen. It doesn't help me at all. I could have given him the Wikipedia definition and said it's a, a fine, coarse, powdery substance which comprises the male microgametophytes, I'm not even sure if I said that right, of seed-bearing plants. And if I had uh, given my son that technical definition, he would have well, given me a technical definition of how unhelpful that was. But being the wise dad that I am, I realized that at that moment, he didn't need a, a definition in words, he needed a, a picture. And right there in front of us in the water around us was, well, pollen. Uh, it had recently been released from some trees and was floating in the water. And I said, well, well, Luke, look at that right there. You see that stuff in the water? He said, yeah, Dad. And I said, that's pollen. And my four-year-old said, okay. And we moved on to other important subjects like the meaning of life, and there we go. Sometimes definitions uh, may or may not help us. Sometimes what we need are pictures to wrap our minds and hearts around the reality of this world around us. And when it comes to the subject of love, I think that perhaps in God's wisdom, he knew that more than definitions, we would need pictures of what love really is. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 13, we, we have a great gift from our gracious God because here we have a church that, well, frankly, doesn't know much at all about love. They have acted in anything other than love towards each other and towards Paul, the one who wrote this letter. But as we come to it and we see Paul's response to all of the problems in this church, Paul and God speaking through him doesn't merely give us a definition of love. He gives us pictures of it. In fact, throughout this verse, we get a whole bunch of pictures of what love really is. And so we're going to look at that this morning, but before we do, I think we need to, to 
first, remind ourselves of why we should even care. Now, you might not have thought about that question, but I'm sure some of you have. You might be thinking, okay, so what? That's what uh, love is about in 1 Corinthians. What does that have to do with me? Well, well remember that when, when God, through his son Jesus, was communicating what was most important to him, when, when Jesus would talk about what God requires of all of us, he didn't point to success or grades in school or our reputation with those around us. He didn't point to those markers as what would be most important. Instead, Jesus would say, you want to know what God requires of you? Love him. Love him with all of your heart and your mind and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. When, when Jesus would sum up the requirements of a holy, eternal God that rest upon all of us, he would sum it up with the command to love God and to love others. And so we, well, we've got a lot vested in whether or not we both understand and live out a life of love. And so let's look at the ways that Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, and let it be an opportunity to examine your own heart, to see whether or not love is real in you. Are you ready? Oh, very good. We've got some ready folks today, even up in the balcony. Good job. Good job. We're going to move pretty quickly, and I don't have time to cover all of them, but let's camp out on a few of these words. First of all, love is patient. Now, some of you might have grown up reading in the King James Version, and the translation there is the word long-suffering. And frankly, even though it's kind of a weird word, it really gets to the heart of what this biblical word patience is all about. You see, this word and, and all of these words in this section, while in English they sound like attributes, love is patient, if you read these words in Greek, what you're going to find is that these words are active words. And so you could almost translate this, love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. The emphasis is on the action associated with the word. And so when you look at the King James translation of this and you see love is long-suffering, it begins to grab hold of the heart of what is really happening here and what love really looks like. And if you remember that the Corinthians weren't very good at this, it helps to put it in context as well. Now we've, we've already read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that these people were quick to take one another to court. They, uh, they didn't even wait for one another when they had meals together. Some would, would get drunk while others went home hungry. This was not a very patient crowd. And so Paul says love is patient. It acts in patient ways. What he's pointing to here is something like what we might describe as tough love. And not the tough love that, that disciplines a child, but rather a kind of love that can take abuse from somebody else and not have to dish it back out. It's the kind of love that, that is patient, that is able to, to see that inflammatory remark on Facebook and not be compelled to shoot back their own inflammatory remark in response. 
It's the, it's the kind of love that hears the criticism that someone might levy at them and does not feel the need to demand an apology or to then go around behind their back and smear them because that would only be fair. No, the, the kind of patient love that's being described here is not just uh, the patience that comes when you work with two-year-olds, that you just have to endure being with them sometimes. No, this is a patience that is able to, well, take things from others that are wrong, that are hurtful, and yet not demand that the other person pay you back. In our culture of trigger words and social media justice, the kind of Christian love that is called upon from us is not a love that should be associated with rose petals and rainbows. No. Christian love, love that is patient, is love that, that provides a, a thick skin. It, it makes us like rhinos with thick, leathery hide so that we can take it when things come against us and we don't have to dish it out on others. So I think maybe what Paul would say if he was looking at our own culture and the, the lack of patience that's demonstrated, not just within the church, but all around. I think Paul might say, you know, y'all have a tendency to treat mosquitoes like daggers. You, you treat the little criticisms and the little words that people say and the, the little conflicts that come when you're uh, dealing with people from opposing worldviews. And every time a little prick comes... You just throw a fit, and you feel like someone's uh, stabbed you and is trying to take away everything from you. But patience doesn't do that. Patience has a thick enough skin that it, it can take things, small things from others. And instead of responding in small ways, it is big, and it is strong, and it is able to say, bring it on if that's what you got to do but it's not going to come back from me. Patience is tough like a rhinoceros. And these words that come with it are, are, are also very appropriate for this kind of a picture. When he says, love is not provoked. In, in Greek, this is the word that, that means to sharpen. It's like sharpening a knife. But anger works in ways that when it is stirred up, it doesn't always just lash out. Anger can fester in our hearts and we sharpen it. Anger is that which we nurse inside of ourselves and then let it loose, either on that person that we're angry with or on someone else. But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't sharpen the anger. Love is tough enough to say, you hurt me, but I don't have to hurt you back. Love. It's tough, and it's not provoked to anger. Another interesting word that kind of falls in this category is, is translated here, love bears all things. In, in Greek, it's the picture of what would happen when they put a, put a roof onto a structure. And what's being communicated here is that once you put the roof on the structure, nothing can get in and nothing can get out. The opposite of love is when we're hurt or offended, and we're happy to let it out. Everyone around us is going to know about it. But love is able to put a roof on its emotions, to be under control, 
and say, I don't have to punish everybody even though I've been hurt, even though I'm, I, I, I'm upset. I don't have to spill this out on everybody. I can put a roof on it, and I can bear all things. The picture of love that's being painted here is a picture of tough, strong love, not rose petals and rainbows, but a love that is as tough as steel when it needs to be. And it will not be enticed towards anger and towards petty, small, uh, uh, cutting remarks. It is a tough love. But don't think that that means it's an insensitive love. That the love that is described here that we're all commanded to express, don't think it's insensitive. Because you, you need to look at the other words that are right alongside. And, and there's a group of them, but let me sort of uh, set it up this way. When, when I was a kid, my family uh, would sometimes drive through Fort Worth, and there was a, a segment right there on I-20 where the prairie dog colony used to be. Some of you might remember the prairie dog colony. It's very sad. They're gone now. I think they had a prairie dog hunt and got rid of them all, but we won't talk about how they do that. But as a kid, I remember my parents would say, okay, guys, we're coming up on the prairie dog colony, and we would all look out the window and, and try to spot the prairie dogs. And, and you know how these, these little animals work. Uh, they have centuries, little century uh, prairie dogs. And they would, if you don't know what a prairie dog is, just think of a, well, a skinny rat. Uh, that's about all that it really is. It's not an actual dog. I just thought some of you might not know. So it's a little skinny rat. And, and the way that the prairie dog colony works is they have centuries uh, that will stand up on these little mounds. And these little dogs will be standing there. And they're just intently looking out. I'm not sure what they're looking for, but they're always looking. I mean, they are alert. And it's one of the ways that the prairie dogs alert one another of danger. If they uh, see a predator, they'll start uh, barking and calling. And they'll all know to go hide in their, uh, in their little colony in caves. Well, prairie dogs are always alert. They're always watching, looking out, ready to respond. Now, I, I point you to the picture of the prairie dog because you need to understand that this next set of words, well, they're like that. When we look at the word kindness, it's easy to sort of think, well, this is what we teach children to do, right? They need to be kind to one another uh, and share their toys. Well, this is not a toddler word. This is a grown-up word. Kindness is what is used to describe the good Samaritan who's going about his business, sees a man who has been beaten and attacked and left for dead. And what does he do? He gets involved. He moves to respond. He acts immediately. Kindness is alert watching for needs around it and doesn't have to be encouraged or pushed into response. Kindness is that impulse to act, to help those in need. Love, the way that the Apostle Paul describes it and that really all of the Bible and the New Testament in particular paints it is a love that is alert, looking for ways to bless the others. And it's a good thing, because this same word kindness will be used to describe God's kindness in sending his son Jesus to rescue us from sin and death. God himself was alert, looking for a way to move into the pain and the suffering and the brokenness. And he calls us 
to that same kind of alert love that's ready to act. And that love acts, but it does not act improperly. Another way to translate this, and some translations will say this, it will say that, that love is not rude. And you know what it means when it says love is not rude? It means love is not rude. It's really, that's really not very difficult to jump across. Uh, now, manners may change throughout cultures, but all cultures have systems of good manners. And what's being pointed to here is to say, look, love has good manners. Love makes eye contact when talking to the other person. Love holds the door open for the person behind you. Love is, is looking for ways to, uh, to, to protect and to bless and to, uh, to care for those who are younger and older, those who are weaker and who are not able to take care of themselves. Love operates in the system of manners. Now, it can be kind of considered to be old-fashioned or out of place to, to talk about manners or to teach manners. But what you need to know is that manners in our culture and in every other culture, it, it, they, work like, they work like the oil inside of a car engine. Uh, people rubbing together will create friction. Manners serve to lubricate the engine. And as long as the oil is there, that commonly agreed uh, way to say we're going to treat one another uh, with respect, not rudely, then the engine operates just fine. But when you reject manners and you say, well, that's just old-fashioned. I don't, I, I, I don't need to worry about not texting while I'm talking to somebody. People just need to get over it and realize this is just what we do. No, that's rude. Don't do that. If someone is talking to you, put the phone down and look at them. Why? Because love isn't rude. When we reject and throw away manners, instead of putting oil into the engine of our culture, we're putting sand in there. We're creating an abrasion that will begin to break down and to tear apart the, the workings of our society. You want to know one of the reasons why our culture is so divided and fractured and broken? It's because we've just said, Love doesn't matter. Love expressed through good manners and choosing not to be rude to one another. But the love described in the Bible calls us to this kind of, of love that acts properly. It also calls us to not be selfish. In Greek, this is an interesting little expression because what it, what it says here is that love does not seek or demand its own. Now, we have needs. Some of you might know the, the book, The Five Love Languages, by Dr. Gary Chapman. And he describes different ways that people uh, receive love through uh, physical affection or through words of affirmation or through acts of service. And it's a good way to think about how uh, we give and receive love. But it can be abused. In fact, I've, I've seen this uh, happen in the context of, of marriage, where one spouse, uh, knowing about the five love, language, like, love languages, will say, well, my spouse knows that my love language is time together. I need that quality time. And my spouse is not giving it to me. And so you know what? Even though I know that words of affirmation are 
are his love language, I'm not going to give it to him either because he's not meeting my needs. Do you see how that's the opposite of love? Love does not seek its own. It doesn't demand what it needs from everyone around it. Love is willing to say, I'm going to seek your good. Even if my good isn't met, I'm still going to seek your good. And frankly, y'all, this is the only way that marriage in particular, church in particular, can work. Is if each of us choose to say, I'm going to trust God to meet my needs, and I'm going to seek to meet others. I'm going to seek to make sure that they get what they need. When a couple in marriage does that, the relationship can flourish. And when a church like this does that, the church can flourish. Love does not seek its own. Now, the others I'm going to have to skip over for the sake of time, but it will be really important to consider what it means to find no joy in unrighteousness, uh, to think about how unthinkable it is that one would live enviously or boastfully or conceitedly, particularly given the fact that in the Bible, proud people end up covered in maggots in Isaiah 28, eating grass in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, and eaten by worms while still alive in Acts chapter, uh, what is it? Acts chapter 12. So if you want that, then you can just go ahead and continue to be proud. Uh, that's, what you, uh, that's what you get. Love doesn't do that. It's not proud. It's not puffed up. It's not conceited. But here's the question. What do you notice about all these different descriptions, particularly in comparison to the way our culture tends to talk about love? If you ask Siri what love is, she'll have a variety of smart answers to, uh, to, to that question. But one of them is that love is an ineffable feeling. You know, that's oftentimes the way we describe it. Love is a feeling inside of me that I just can't quite understand or explain. But do you know what's missing from this description of love? Feeling. Because the love that's described in the Bible is not an emotion that we feel. It is a virtue that we choose. It is a virtue that can be commanded of us because what the Bible is talking about is not first how you feel. It's talking first about how you act. Love, biblical love, acts in this world. It is an expression of our will, uh, the choices that we make. We choose to be patient. We choose not to be provoked to anger. We choose not to be selfish. We choose not to be boastful or proud or rude. And conversely, we choose the opposite. And all of us are beings that are acting out what we really love. And so as we think about what God requires of us, and we look at this list and we evaluate, and we begin to see the places where our will has chosen something other than love the way God describes, we have a problem. Because if we're honest with ourselves, 
then we will come to the conclusion that we can't will ourselves to love like this. We, we can't just choose to respond this way in every way that's required of us. We've got a problem. We cannot meet the demand of God that we love like he loves. Can't do it. But the good news is that he can, and he has, and he's made a way for us to participate in his eternal love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has made this love real in front of us so that we would know what it was. But just knowing isn't enough. It has to somehow invade us, inhabit us. And God has made a way for that to happen too. In Romans chapter 5, verse 4, he says that now God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. For those of you who say, I recognize that I can't meet this requirement on my own, and I'm ready to, to say my will's not enough, I need God to do something that only he can do. And you turn, you trust and say, I believe that what Jesus has done is enough. And I want his love to come and occupy me. I, wanna, I want his will to be what shapes my will. When you choose to what the Bible calls repent, to put aside being the, the leader and boss of your own life and to trust Jesus to rule, then the promise of God is that he would send his love to inhabit you. And in so doing, you could begin to love not to the best of your ability, but to the best of his perfect ability. And when we do that as a, as a family of faith, we put the invisible love of God on display. And that is what our church needs. That is what our city and country needs. It needs just folks who will say, I get it. On my own, I'm not enough. I need Jesus' love to be poured into my heart. Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul prays for another church. And I think it can be our prayer today. He says this. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness 
of God. May that be our prayer today. Father, we know that we didn't invent this. It didn't come from us. No human mind would have conceived that this would be the way that love would look. And no human heart can, can mimic it or manufacture it. We need you to pour it into us. And so today, would you do that? Would you pour your love into us and let us know that it is real and that you are real and that you are here? Would you let us encounter the reality of your love today? And would you cause it to spill out of our lives onto everyone around us? Do this by the power of your spirit that you have promised to send as we trust in your son. We pray this in his good name. Amen.